open up our Bibles uh, to the book of Daniel. Again, one of the, the most complex, daunting books of the Bible that exists. Um, two books that most people don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole, the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Um, we talked about Revelation last year. We're talking about Daniel this year, which I hope communicates that we really do want to preach the full counsel of God's word. Um, we're not scared of the difficult passages. A perfect example of that, just last week, seven days ago, we talked about the prophecy of the 70 weeks, and you all walked away with headaches, and yet we, we tackled it, we went after it. And we will continue for the next three weeks to work our way through the final chapters of this book of the Bible. And I think there are going to be some really sweet things that come out of our time over the course of the next three weeks. If you look at Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12, uh, you could actually preach these chapters as one sermon. Now, that would be crazy because the entire sermon would be taken up by us just reading the passage, right? It would take us that long to do so. But this is, this is actually one vision. This is the final vision that Daniel receives. And so it's broken up into chapter 10, the introduction, which we'll look at this morning. And then you get chapter 11, which is the actual content of the vision. We'll talk about that next week. And then we'll close out this series with chapter 12, the conclusion of this final vision. And, and that final week of the series, we'll also revisit some of the things that we talked about in week one, some of the goals of this series, and really wrestle with the question of, did any of those things actually happen in, in our minds, in our hearts? Did any of those things work their way down into the deep recesses of, of our being as a church? And so... As you look at chapter 10 this morning, think in terms of a scene-setting passage. This is a setting of the scene for what's to come in chapter 11 as we actually look at the vision itself. But, but don't write it off. Just because it's a scene-setting passage doesn't mean that there aren't a number of things that God intends for us to learn and glean from this morning. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to understand, that Bible's yours. Take it for free. The church's gift to you. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Jesus, indeed, you did say that you would build your church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. You died for your bride. We are your bride. You died for us. We thank you for the gospel. I pray that the gospel would be clear this morning. I pray that it would permeate our minds and hearts and work its way deep down into the recesses of our being in a way that changes us, in a way that we walk away different than who we were when we walked into this room this morning. God, for those of us uh, for whom the gospel has become a stagnant truth, God, that you would awaken our hearts yet again to the beauty and wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, we thank you for how far you've brought this church so far and pray that you would continue to carry her by your grace as you call us to participate in that glorious privilege and honor of being a part of the building of your kingdom. God, we pray as we look at Daniel chapter 10 this morning that you would move in ways that we could never anticipate in our hearts. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of your spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, let's get after it. Verse one, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. 
And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So to establish a little bit of context before we move any further, in the first year of his reign, Cyrus had issued a decree that would allow the Israelites to return to their land and to rebuild the temple. We've talked about that in previous weeks in this series. Notice that this morning's passage begins with the words, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So it's been two years since Cyrus told the Israelites to return to their home and to rebuild the temple. Daniel says, verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Now, this should strike all of us as odd. The Israelites have, have been given the green light for a homecoming, a return to the land of Canaan, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple, the reinstitution of the sacrificial system. Daniel should be jumping for joy at this point in the game, right? So what is he doing? Why is he mourning? Why is he fasting? Why is he on his face prostrate before the Lord? I mean, historians go so far as to make the point that this is during the Passover season, the feast of unleavened bread. This is a time to eat. This is not a time to fast. Verse 4 gives us an interesting clue that helps to answer that question as to why Daniel's posture is what it is. Verse 4 tells us that Daniel is, in fact, not part of that great homecoming at all. Verse 4 tells us that Daniel is on the bank of the Tigris River. Daniel never left Babylon. Daniel is still in the land of exile. He was never part of that joyous caravan. He watched as many of his closest loved ones got smaller and smaller in the distance. Meanwhile, he remained. Why? Why did Daniel stay? Well, who knows? Perhaps it was old age. Perhaps that was a, a trip that he thought, you know, a man in his 80s just, just can't possibly make that and come out on the other side unscathed. Perhaps it was the heavy labor and, and burden of being in the, the heart of the rebuilding effort that, that kept him in Babylon. I mean, maybe his heart couldn't handle it. Maybe he was so filled with the possibility and wonder of God doing something that the thought of being right in the middle of it just was too much for his heart to take. Perhaps God simply laid it on his heart to remain in Babylon, to be a light in a dark place. We just don't know. But regardless of the reason, we're told that Daniel remained in the midst of a pagan wasteland. And along with that reality, there are a few other things that may have contributed to Daniel's fasting and mourning. For one, we know that there are many who, like Daniel, did not return to the land of Judah. And not necessarily for noble reasons. Um, many had been in exile so long that they lost their hope. They lost their enthusiasm. They lost their joy. You ever been there as a Christian? You've just been grinding it out for so long that it's really hard to grab hold of, of what God is up to in your midst. There are many who didn't see the point of making this kind of a journey, and so they stayed. We also know that there is great opposition to this rebuilding effort. We read about that in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. Daniel, miles and miles away from Jerusalem, is faced with this question of whether the city and the temple will in fact be rebuilt. Kind of like a parent from afar. If you're a parent in this room who have kids who are no longer under your roof, you, you know that thing that happens, and I only know it because my mother tells me about it. I fell asleep at the wheel when I was 18, 
and got into a horrific car accident. And so every time I get in a car, I hear from my mom, you know, you better call me on the other side. And are you awake? Have you had enough cups of coffee and this, that, and the other? There's this panic that sets in when you're at a distance, right? You feel helpless. You feel like you can't do anything. Daniel is is still in this faraway land. The best he can do is to fast and pray in the midst of the helplessness. And that's honestly a really beautiful thing. There's some in this room that I would venture to say this morning that God is calling you to become more of a prayer warrior. For some, it may be because it's all you can do. Um, There's a man by the name of William Still, who was a pastor in Aberdeen, Scotland, who once had an elderly woman in his congregation say the following words to him. She said, I have been a widow for 17 years. Formerly, I had a Bible class of over 100 girls, many of whom have since gone to the mission field. That's a sweet ministry. Yet it was only after my dear husband died, and I was then rather frail and able only to sit at my own fireside and pray, that the Lord gave me this burden and said to me, You have served me long with these girls and in your local church, but this is the task of your life reserved for you in your 80s. You have to pray for something in Aberdeen. For some, the the heavy labor is just not possible. For us, it's not the rebuilding of a city or a temple. It's the planting of a church, which is hard work to get a church off of the ground. But, But prayer is not just for the feeble. Nor is it just for the females in the church, right? Prayer ministries often are um, heavy on the female side because men have abandoned. They've abdicated the role of falling on their faces before the Lord. And so for some of the men in this room, this is a call to be more of a prayer warrior for, for the church, for your family, for your own soul, for the sake of the community at large, Prayers for all who profess to love and follow Jesus. That's why Paul said to pray continually. Though some will commit themselves to being on their knees in a more intentional way, like Daniel. If that's you, let me just say this. You need to hear this. What you do matters immensely. It's not the establishment of of new programs uh, that will change this church and this community. It's prayer. It's faithful prayer. I got a chance a couple weeks ago to sit in with a team of people who uh, pray in Kate's art studio off to the side before this service happens, before uh, we all fill this space to pray that God would move, to um, lift up words of adoration to God, his character, his excellency, to confess sin, to thank God for what he's already at work doing in our midst, and to petition him to to move in, in ways that that would blow our minds, that his gospel would be declared, that he would be made much of, um, that our hearts would be changed. To sit in on that meeting a couple weeks ago was refreshing to my soul. Um, I mean, I walked away incredibly encouraged and reminded of just how much prayer actually matters. It matters because we serve a God who's both willing and able to listen and to act. We'll see that even more as we continue through this morning's passage, but But before we read another word in Daniel chapter 10, let me just say this. Thank you 
Thank you to those who pray for this church. Thank you to those who pray for the leadership of this church and their families, myself included. Thank you to those who pray for this community and the surrounding areas. Thank you to those who pray for God to move as we gather in this place week in and week out. Thank you to those who pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of both their highs and their lows. And thank you to those who pray for your unchurched friends, family members, neighbors, and coworkers. It really does matter. God's listening and he cares about what you say. Another way we could say it, what you do when you fall on your knees is arguably the most important act of service you could possibly commit yourself to as a Christian. In a faraway land, all Daniel can do is fast and pray. And so he does for three weeks. Verse four, on the 24th day of the first month, As I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." So we're now told that Daniel, upon three weeks of fasting and praying, is visited by a man, a man described in such a way that we know that this is no ordinary human being. So so what are we to make of this being that appears to Daniel in this moment? Is this an angelic being? Is this a a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself? Well, on the one hand, there there are a lot of similarities between this description and the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. You have language in Revelation chapter 1 describing Jesus as wearing a long robe with a, a golden sash and eyes like fire and feet like burnished bronze, a face like the shining sun and a voice like the roar of many waters. Sounds very similar to Daniel chapter 10, right? And there's also the fact that Daniel refers to this figure as my Lord three different times, verses 16, 17, and 19. Although, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John actually falls down at the feet of an angel to worship, right? So um, just the declaration of Daniel to to make that statement, my Lord, doesn't necessarily mean that that this is an angel, Um, In fact, I would go so far as to argue that I don't think this is uh, Jesus that we see here in Daniel chapter 10. And and here's why. If you fast forward to uh, to Daniel chapter 10 verse 13, just a few verses um, down, you know, the list uh, in this morning's passage, we're told that this messenger was delayed in coming to Daniel, that it was only after receiving the help of Michael the archangel that this messenger was able to get to Daniel at all. I don't know about you, but that seems a little strange to me that omnipotent, all-powerful Jesus needs the help of an angel in order to carry out his sovereign plan. But if this is an angel, how do you explain that description? How do you make sense of that? Sounds a lot like an appearance of God. Well, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 1, you get this vision of God enthroned. And you see a lot of parallels between the angelic beings in Ezekiel's vision, and this description here in Daniel chapter 10. In fact, the angelic beings in Ezekiel 1 are described as having limbs sparkling like burnished bronze, moving about with the appearance of a flash of lightning, having wings that produce a mighty sound like the voice of God, like the many rushing waters. And so based on this messenger's need for help in verse 13, along with the similar description of the angelic beings in Ezekiel chapter 1, I'm pretty confident this is an angelic messenger of God. But but here's the deal. 
It really doesn't change anything in terms of our interpretation at the end of the day. This angelic messenger is meant to communicate, meant to reflect the holiness and glory of God himself, which is why we're told in verse 7, I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. One commentator that I read this week made the point that even in mediated form through an angel, the presence of God is overwhelming. Daniel's friends all run for the hill. Meanwhile, Daniel's strength is sapped in a blink. His radiance appearance fearfully changed. He finds himself prostrate on the ground. I would venture to say that this is a very different view of the divine than many people in the world as we know it have of the divine. There's, there's the absence in our culture of this healthy fear of the Lord. And I'm not talking about this idea of God as an angry old man in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts at, at the first sign of you screwing up. But rather, I'm talking about a reverence for, a love for, a humility in light of who he is that leads to obedience. An encountering of God's holiness that actually changes us from the inside out. I've shared this passage before from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you, you get um, Peter and Lucy and Edmund and Susan. They're, they're curious about this Aslan figure, this lion-like figure. They don't know anything about him yet, and um, they think he's a human being, and they're sitting for dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver because animals talk in C.S. Lewis's world, which I think is awesome. And um, the dialogue goes something like this. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think the most profound line is the very next one in this scene of this particular book. It comes out of Peter's mouth. He says this, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I've got to wrap my arms around his big, bushy mane. I love him. I've got to be close to him. I've got to experience his nearness. Yet the thought of his drawing near to me creates in me a deep reverence and humility. Why? Because he's the king. I'm not. He's holy. He's glorious. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 10. An encounter with God's holiness, even in mediated form, can sap the strength right out of a person. An encounter with God's holiness even in mediated form, can bring a person to his or her knees. That's a God big enough to worship. That's a God big enough to bend your knee to. I grew up in the South, and I was in and out of the church, and 
Most of my adolescence, I was on the receiving end of efforts to water down the gospel and the character of God in such a way as to make him palatable to me. The only problem was that that was a God who was small enough that I could carry around in a box. He didn't have to be worshipped. He was meant to bend his knee to me because I was bigger than him in my mind. It, it was upon listening to a sermon in my early 20s uh, that I heard, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It, it was a repackaging of a Jonathan Edwards sermon entitled, A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul by the Spirit of God. When you remember a sermon title that long, it made an impact on your soul, right? And this one did, and here's why. Because as I listened to that sermon, I heard this unpacking of a God that for the first time in my life, I thought, I, I, can't, I can't box him in anymore. He's blowing out uh, this uh, idea of who I perceive him to be in such a way that he must be worshiped. I must bend, bend my knee to him. Daniel's God is a God that we can actually bend our knee to. Daniel's God is a God that we can actually give our lives for because he's worthy. So let me ask you this morning, is this the God that you know? For many Christians, this is the sad declaration. That's the God that I once knew, but it's not the God that I presently know. In other words, past tense, I became a Christian when I came face to face with God's holiness and my sinfulness. And I realized that I couldn't bridge the gap between the two. And so I turned to Jesus who made a way where there was no way, who put himself where I deserved to be so that I could... Um, I could be in a place where only he deserved to be, whose atoning work made me acceptable before the Father. But for many, that gets left in the rearview mirror over the course of time. As we move on to bigger and better things, the gospel just gets left in the dust. But listen to me this morning. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is the gospel-centered, gospel-saturated life. It's a life of growing in our awareness of, of both God's holiness and our own sinfulness. It's not that God's becoming more holy or that we're becoming more sinful. It's that we're getting a true depiction of who he really is and who we really are. And in the midst of that, something else happens. Something else grows, namely our deep appreciation and love for Jesus. As we go, oh, he didn't just die for this guy. He died for this guy whose rabbit hole of sin runs far deeper than I ever imagined it could. His sacrifice, his righteousness, his cross become increasingly sweeter and more powerful to us. Many of us, and I would put myself into this category at times, are a lot like Daniel's friends. Running for the hills rather than facing God's holiness and our own inadequacies. And sometimes masking it in the form of good things. Give me a Bible study, the next theological piece of truth. Just don't give me a community group where I have to wrestle with my own sin and what the gospel has to say. In light of that, shrinking the cross oftentimes by either minimizing our sin or God's holiness and character. And the, the sad thing is, as we do so, the cross fails to loom larger in our lives. That's why so many people in the Bible go into stagnancy mode for years, maybe even decades, where you go, the cross just looks the same as it's always looked to me. There's a risk in sticking around like Daniel to come face to face with the holiness and glory of God. But it is well worth it. Look at what Daniel both learns and encounters because he doesn't run for the hills like his friends. Verse 10. And behold, 
a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Similar to chapter 9, we're told that um, Daniel is greatly loved by God. He's precious to God, so much so that God sends this angelic being to Daniel specifically. That's crazy when you think about it. We'll see in just a moment that God takes one of his angels off of assignment in order to attend to this man that he loves. And that's not just specific to Daniel alone. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. If you're a Christian, that's you. You're in the same boat as Daniel. That while there is no strong biblical support for the idea that each one of us has a guardian angel specifically assigned to us, there is uh, biblical support that angels minister to God's people. Or as one theologian puts it, for all you sports lovers in the room, um, it may not be that angels play man-to-man, but they definitely play zone. This is much of what Daniel chapter 10 is actually about. It's about this peeling back of the curtain to see the spiritual realm for what it actually really and truly is. Look at verses 12 through 14. These are pretty incredible words. It says this, beginning in verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. In other words, Daniel, I've been trying to get to you since the moment you started fasting and praying three weeks ago. And I would have been here by now were it not for the spiritual opposition that I faced. Namely, the prince of the kingdom of Persia who hindered me for those 21 days. What in the world does that mean? Well, strangely, it's pretty well agreed upon amongst most scholars, both liberal and conservative, that this prince of the kingdom of Persia is a fallen angel one of Satan's minions, a member of his army of darkness. Okay, that's crazy. Think about it for a second. Many of us in the room are aware that there's a spiritual battle taking place in the heavenly realm. But for whatever reason, we oftentimes tend to think that it's some sort of otherworldly thing. In fact, many of us like to tuck it away into the recesses of our mind because it terrifies us to think that there are actual demons, fallen angels in the world as we know it. Here, We're told that forces of darkness in the spiritual realm have set up shop in the king's palace in Persia. That's a crazy thing to think about uh, with election day coming in two days. What are the implications of that? I'm just going to leave you with that one on your own. (laughs) What I do know in general terms is that fallen angels... Uh, are assigned to particular world leaders and empires at times for the sake of Satan's schemes. Now, that's crazy, but that should not be surprising to us. It's not that outlandish to hear someone say that pastors and their families have a bullseye on their backs because if you can take out an under-shepherd, you can cripple a church. We talk about that often. Why in the world would we not acknowledge the same thing to be true of human governments, that if Satan and his minions can whisper into the ears of of presidents and prime ministers, of kings and congressmen, that 
he can really inflict some damage in the world, you know, as we know it. But here's the encouraging thing about these verses. Notice that the only thing that the devil and his fallen angels can do is delay God's messenger. They cannot overthrow God's plan. That Satan and his minions are on a leash. There's only so far that they can go. They, They do not have final jurisdiction on anything. Satan is God's lackey, you could say. That even when he thinks he wins, he loses. His greatest achievement, the murder of God the Son, brought about the salvation of many. He thought he had won, and the very act that caused him to declare victory was the very act that delivered the death blow to his very own head. That's good news. Daniel's speechless as he encounters this peeling back of the curtain. Look at verse 15. When he had spoken to me, according to these words, I, Daniel, turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one of, in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision pains, uh, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Daniel gets a, a backstage pass to what God's people are really up against. It's not just human opposition as you read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's an all out war against the devil of hell and his army of darkness. That's real. No wonder Daniel finds himself speechless and lacking strength. Not only has he gotten a vision of God's glory and holiness, he's gotten a a glimpse of spiritual warfare on the world stage. And according to verses 20 and 21, he's told that it's not going to go away anytime soon. Look at those last two verses of this chapter. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. In other words, the battle between good and evil, light and darkness, will continue with the coming of new human empires. In this moment in Daniel's life, it's Persia, but Greece will replace Persia. And this angelic being says the battle will still go on in the spiritual realm. And it's not just Persia and Greece. It won't stop there. Satan will fight tooth and nail um, to gain ground until the final death blow is delivered to him, which is why. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, Put on the whole armor of God, Christian, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That There's a cosmic war taking place that we cannot see with our own eyes visibly. Yet that doesn't make it any less real. And so what's the takeaway from Daniel chapter 10? I mean, are we just supposed to walk away speechless and discouraged as we leave this place this morning, knowing that the devil is in full attack mode? Are there any gospel implications in a passage like this? Well, let me just start with the gospel first. Okay, this passage should both humble and comfort us in the same way that the experience that Daniel had in chapter 10 sobered and comforted him. That God, think about this, God is so big 
Um, and, and he is at work in a, at a cosmic level behind the veil of what our eyes can see to accomplish his eternal purposes. And yet, that same God that is at work on a cosmic level is concerned about a single human being in this chapter who's precious to him. As one commentator was helpful to point out to me this week in my study, going back to chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, verse 21, that the same God who removes kings and sets up kings, that's cosmic, gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's personal. That's you and me. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel? A God who on a cosmic scale is working throughout redemptive history to establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that shall never end, a king who shall never be dethroned. And yet, that glorious, marvelous, all-inspiring king of the cosmos died for you personally. That's the gospel. That Jesus loves you so much, he was willing to take a bullet for you, to step in front of a moving train for you, to be mocked, beaten, and nailed to a splintered Roman wooden cross for you. And not just to set some example of what it means to sacrificially uh, lay down your life for others. His death was atoning. He was punished in our place. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. That's love. That's the kind of love that not angels, nor rulers, nor principalities can ever separate us from. Romans chapter 8. An encounter with God's holiness, even in mediated form, can sap the strength right out of a person. Can bring a person to his or her knees. Yet, Jesus has made a way for us to stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade presence of a holy God. And not burn up in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him forever. Only Christ and his cross can do that. Apart from Jesus, there's no way we can stand in the presence of God. Yet another opportunity to marvel at the one who's made a way where there was no way. Or if you're not a Christian, to turn to the one who made a way where there was no way in faith and to trust in his life, death, and resurrection. That it's the marveling at Jesus and his cross that actually inspires us to fight. That's the so what of this morning. Simply to fight and to pray. Abraham Kuyper uh, once famously said this, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came to view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. That's crazy when you think about the amount of bloodshed throughout the course of human history on a human level. In other words, the human conflicts and wars that we see in the world as we know it, they're reflections of a much older, much more vicious war that's been taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And we're not just talking about a cosmic level battle between God and Satan. We're talking about a spiritual battle that you and I face on a personal level. We talked about this in the series on the fruit of the spirit, that there's a war being waged on the human soul. Remember the quote from the movie Rounders? If you can't spot the sucker in your first half hour at the table, then you're the sucker. 
that if you can't see the war for what it is, if you bought into the lie that there is no war, if you bought into the lie that there is this um, morally, spiritually neutral option, you're missing it. The Christian life is a cage match. We're in the octagon right now as we speak. Sometimes it's a fight between the new self that longs for holiness and the old self that longs to call the shots, but other times it's a fight between that new self and the devil of hell and his army of darkness itself. For some, this morning is a reminder of an enemy that maybe you forgot about. It's one of Satan's greatest tactics to make you forget that he exists, to disguise himself as an angel of light. There's more going on than what our eyes are privy to seeing. And lest that discourage you, let me remind you of another thing that we talked about in that very sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. If you come in this morning frustrated with the battle that you face day in and day out as a Christian, where there are some days that you feel quite victorious and other days that you feel quite defeated. Let me, let me say this. There's something far worse than the war between the flesh and the spirit. There's something far worse than the fight against the devil and his fallen angels. Namely, the absence of war altogether. The flesh ruling and reigning from the throne of our lives because Jesus isn't there. The devil and his army having no interest in you because you're not a threat. Or even worse, because you're on their team and you don't even know it. That's terrifying. Be encouraged if you sense yourself in the middle of a spiritual battlefield. That's very likely a sign that the Spirit of God does in fact indwell you. And this is a fight that not only can be won, it will be won. We should certainly be sobered and humbled, just like Daniel. This is a fight that, that none of us can fight on our own. We're feeble on our own. The good news of Daniel chapter 10 is that we're not on our own. God is committed to his glory and our good. God will give us all the strength that we need, just like he strengthened Daniel. Think about this. We have the God who created everything out of nothing on our side, just by speaking. We have the God who's already delivered the decisive, uh, the decisive uh, death blow to Satan and his army of darkness on our side. We have the God who commands angels on our side. And he will give us what we need in order to persevere. Even if it means taking one of his angels off of assignment to attend to us. That's how much you're loved, church. To declare to you that you're greatly loved, to strengthen you. A God who would give his own life for you will give you what you need. He will. The victory belongs to the church. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When, when you read that passage in Matthew's gospel account, the, the gates of hell are not an offensive weapon. It's not that Satan is on the attack and is, is going to emerge victorious. It's that he can't defend his domain of darkness against the church as she goes forward as a light. And in light of that truth, we fight. And as counterintuitive as it may seem, coming back to one of the first things I said this morning as we close, one of the greatest weapons of warfare that we have at our disposal is prayer. What is it that brought this angelic messenger to Daniel in the first place? Answer, a man on his knees. A praying church is undeniably a force to be reckoned with. Listen to this. It's said that Mary, Queen of Scots, was more fearful of the prayers of John Knox than any potential invading army. Quite possible that Mary, Queen of Scots, had a more accurate understanding of the doctrine of prayer than many Christians. Again, it's prayer that will change this church and will, that will change this community. 
And I'm talking, I, I'm talking prayers that require God's strength to accomplish, not yours, not mine. I'm talking prayers that, that might actually require an angel to be taken off of assignment to bring to fruition. I'll leave you with this quote this morning from Ian Duguid. He says this. He says, Our prayers are often limited by small imaginations and little faith. We don't pray for big things because we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that God can or will do them. This is especially true during those difficult and discouraging times when life is hard and spiritual progress seems so slow. We pray for small sinners to become Christians, but not for big sinners. We pray for victory over the small sins in our lives, but we leave those large, ingrained sinful habits untouched. We pray for change in our small corner of our state, but not in the country at large or throughout the world. He goes on to say, wake up your vision. This is the great and mighty God whom we serve. He causes kingdoms to rise and kingdoms to fall. He controls the detailed events of world history as we shall see in Daniel chapter 11. And this God chooses to work in response to the prayers of his people. Unreal the honor and privilege that we get to be a part of that. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.